Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Happy New Year! We're back! <laughs> it's the new term of Reasons to be Cheerful. The episodes you've heard over the past few weeks were live shows, but we're back in the same room. Although Ed and I have had a lovely holiday together, we went kayaking. Yes, it was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, just me and you in a canoe. Yeah. Or going, what, solo or... D- Kind of, we've got to be honest, we've not seen no, each other. Exactly. We've not, not just, seen each other for some time. We've not spoken or seen each other for a number of weeks. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I, I felt slightly aggrieved by that I you know, didn't invite me on the family holiday. I know, I'm sorry. I, know, I gather from your other podcasts that you felt aggrieved. I did a little. I, I see myself very much to your family, like the yeah. Fonz was to the Cunningham family in Happy Days. Yeah, well, yeah. I, do, I think my Happy Days knowledge doesn't really go beyond jumping the shark. Uh, was so. it on ITV? Yeah. Right, there we go. Those we were the Cunningham family. Well, Richie Cunningham. Oh, Richie Cunningham, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Played by... Um, Ron Howard. Ron Howard, yeah. yeah. And the Fonz lived with the family. He was allowed to live in his own oh, sort of granny see. flat above their garage. That's right. But, you know, your, so your you family don't yourself... seem to have adopted me in the same way. You, well, you haven't jumped the shark yet. That's, that's <laughs> well, any, I'm not sure. consolation. <laughs> have you had... Let's, before we get on to the depressing bit, has it been a good summer for you? Yes, very, very nice. We were in Canada. We had a lovely time. Um, Canadian Rockies, amazing. Uh, get away from it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really did as well. You you, you unplugged. You went off grid. I did. I, I, I uh, got rid of my email, uh, changed my phone number. You you got one of those. I oh, know you didn't give me the new phone no, number. No, sorry. No. <laughs> Despite me uh, making several barbed comments, you, you, you didn't give in at no, all. I didn't, A no. lot of people would have picked up on the yeah. social cue or been ground yeah. down by me. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, your, your powers of resistance I, were it's true, yeah. quite impressive, really. Yeah. I thought you, you, know, you once I'd open the floodgate to yeah. you, it would sort of, you know. Yeah, I mean, I had a few long nights of the soul while you're away. And <laughs> could have really done with a friend on the other end of the phone, but. Right, so well, yeah. sorry about that. <laughs> well, anyway, it's, let's move on. Uh, it's nice to be back together. How was your summer? It was, it, well, I've not, Busy. Had, I've not had any holiday no, yet. Haven't. I've got a bit of time off soon, but uh, I was in Salford doing some work for yeah. BBC Radio 5 Live, and then I was in Edinburgh. You've done, you did, there was something else you did, wasn't it? You did the Commode and Mayo film review. So I said, the you know, you're on the Swiss Army Knife principle, you've also, you've covered the corkscrew as you well. You said I'm now the tweezers. The, tweezers the little tweezers well. that you yeah. Well, I was trying to think of a good, of a good sort of, you know, analogy, really. I thought that maybe if I go and do a show with Mark Kermode, then it could just stir up a little bit of jealousy. Definitely. A bit, a bit of spark back into our relationship. No, no, it definitely, definitely um, stirs st- st- some jealousy. I- I'd like to work with Mark Kermode as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's it's been a, a good summer all round, I guess until you switched your phone back on. Yes, well, it's sort of, uh, it's pretty uh, wacky days, isn't it? 
that's one way of putting it. Uh, I feel that often you and I can can kind of fall into these roles where you're a little bit of the Tigger and I can be a little bit of the Eeyore. But today it, it's felt a little bit the other way around. I think honestly, part of what is extraordinary about this week uh, is I think Boris Johnson does represent a new level of charlatanism uh, that we haven't seen in British politics. I mean, you know, I have a lot to say about David Cameron. I think it was, you know, some people will be surprised about me saying this, but I think Boris Johnson represents a new level of being just able to feel like he can say anything as long as he can get away with it. You know, I'm not proroguing Parliament because of Brexit. I'm going to get a deal at the European Council when you, when all of the evidence is that behind the scenes I've got no intention of having a deal. I don't want an election when it's clear he's gunning for an election. You know, it's sort of like, I mean, I, I feel like what's happened is that we have a kind of country and a constitution that is supposed to operate on the basis that there is a sort of modicum of honesty among politicians. And I feel like he is just in a totally different place where he will just say anything. And also, and I think you picked up on this earlier before we came on air, I kind of didn't really, I don't know him well at all, but I think he is much, much worse than I would have ever realised about him. Because when you've talked about him on the podcast, yeah. past, I, mean, it's, you, you, I mean, we've only ever heard about like fun japes on the bus on the way to the yeah. Olympic Park. But, I mean, do you think it's an easy comparison to make, I think, but do you think he's looked across the Atlantic and seen, yeah. okay, I'm a diff- I'm different yes. to Donald Trump, but there, there is a way that in what appeared to be a functioning democracy, you can just say anything and if you have no shame and i think it, it we kind of matter. saw that when he wrote the telegraph article you know saying that muslim women who wear burqas are you know the letterboxes all of that stuff you saw him starting to kind of think okay i just need to be sort of populist right trump like and that's my way back you right. know what i mean and i think and i think that is right and i think you know i think in a way maybe part of the thing is he doesn't really necessarily care that much about brexit you know, he, he, he oh, just... So famous, famously, he wrote he the two articles. We've, yeah. we've spoken to people who, off yeah. the record, yeah. have been with him in social situations yeah. and said that's that's very much his deal. He will sit there and almost as a party piece give the argument yeah. for and against. And I think it's like he cares only about one thing and that is about himself. Yeah. And he is really willing to do any anything to... Um, he, he will say and do anything to advance himself. Um, and that is dangerous. I mean, that is he, that he, you know he, that is a dangerous, dangerous phenomenon. Well, we should point out that we are recording this podcast on Thursday, so a lot's going to happen like, in the next. Who knows? When, yeah. By the time you're Joe listening Johnson to this, Johnson appears Monday. to have quit as we've been as we've been on air. So, uh, um, yeah, so uh, watch this. This page. may all be terribly, terribly yeah. out of date by yeah. Monday. Exactly. All you right. might become supreme ruler of the, the country. The Jeffocracy. The yeah. time may have come for Honestly, the Honestly, God, I mean, it looks like a more and more attractive prospect, I've got to say. <laughs> All right. I, mean, uh, I don't mean that as a backhanded insult. Because it sounded a bit like one, yeah. but I'll take it. Uh, but but the, the world keeps turning and the, the podcast keeps appearing. And what are we going to be talking about this week? Well, this week we're talking about gambling. It's estimated there are half a million problem gamblers in the UK with a further 2 million at risk of developing gambling problems. Adverts for gambling are everywhere, particularly in sports. Half of Premier League football clubs have gambling companies sponsoring their shirts this season. Our guests argue we need to take a public health approach to gambling, treating it in a similar way to tobacco or alcohol. There have been some moves 
in that direction recently, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. We'll be talking to Charles and Liz Ritchie, who set up the campaign group Gambling With Lives. And after that, we're talking to Henrietta Bowden-Jones, who set up the UK's first gambling addiction treatment clinic, and Jim Orford, professor of psychology and expert on the gambling industry. They'll be telling us about some of the solutions. So after our long time apart, what's your reason to be cheerful? Crumpets. Mm. My son, who's three, has become obsessed with crumpets. I only let him have them in moderation. Anyone worrying about healthy eating, uh, I just want to put that out there. But what I've discovered is crumpets aren't that calorific, I guess because they've got so many holes in them. Is that true? So so if I was to have a crumpet with butter, how, how many calories do you think that would be? Uh, 150. 110. So I worked it out. For somebody of my height, I probably need 2,300 calories a day. Yes. I could easily eat 20 crumpets a day. Well, I just, not sort of supersize me. It's like sort of just living on crumpets. Can I suggest maybe you should have wholemeal crumpets? Why though? Well, but that's better. You're supposed to have sort of not supposed to have, you know, refined grains, but sort of that's whole so grains. nice though. But a wholemeal crumpet is probably all right. Do they exist? Where are you shopping? Oh, North London Intelligentsia. <laughs> I, 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 you, I'm sure you can find wholemeal crumpets. Oh, the bourgeoisie with his wholemeal crumpets. Maybe you should have there. Swiss cheese on it because that's got holes on it as well. <laughs> <laughs> on the same holes principle. <laughs> what's, uh, what's your reason to be um, cheerful? Well, I'm not a great uh, fiction reader. Um, you know, I tend to prefer back copies of sort of Labour Party conference reports. But uh, I read this great book, Normal People by Sally Rooney. Oh, right, yeah, everyone's um, been talking about Which this. I think, has it been nominated for the Booker Prize? I think so. Honestly, I thought this book was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I think it's partly the way she writes. And, and you know, given that neither of us are millennials, you'd think, well, reading about millennials sort of growing up in in Ireland, is that really going to sort of speak to, to us? But I think I think what's really clever about it is it sort of, it speaks well beyond that age group. Um, so that is my top summer reading tip, uh, Sally Rooney. And what's your top autumn reading tip? Well, I mean... David Cameron's memoirs. I mean, they're, they're out any day, aren't they? <laughs> true. That is true. I'm sure it'll be a page turner. You'll just be looking in the index to see how many times you mentioned. Yeah. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. On the line now, we have Charles and Liz Ritchie, who are the founders of Gambling with Lives. Hello, both. Hello. Thanks for talking to us. And I wondered if we could start by asking you to share your story. Uh, your, Your son, Jack. Uh, took his life in November of 2017 following problems with gambling addiction. I wondered if you could share Jack's story and then talk about uh, how you set up gambling with lives as a result of that. Sure. Well, Jack first became addicted to the fixed odd betting terminals when he was at school. Um, He and quite a large group of his friends in the sixth form used to uh, pop out of school in the school dinner hour and gamble with their lunch money on the fixed or betting terminals. And Jack became addicted very quickly. He told us about a year later um, when he'd lost some money which he'd been given by his grandma. We didn't know at that point at all about the scale and depth of gambling addiction. And what happened at that point was uh, Charles particularly, and he went round 
all the bookies to uh, self-exclude, um, which was a very depressing experience for everybody. But we found out after he died that he almost immediately went on and played on the same addictive casino games online. He never gambled a lot of money, but he gambled over the next seven years, um, mainly online. Uh, he was free for many months at a time. Um, but uh, he, he, he was out actually teaching um, English in, in, in Vietnam when he, having been pretty much free for 18 months of gambling, he'd gambled 15 times in the last 18 months and hadn't gambled at all in the previous six months, um, very much out of the blue. And I don't think we'll ever quite know why he, he was dragged back into gambling. We assume that he got a, a, an email or direct marketing or free bets or whatever. Um, and he, uh, he, 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 he ended up taking his own life um, in November 2017. He hadn't lost much money at that, at that point. Well, he never did lose very much. Um, he'd lost probably £1,500 that day. And um, on the Sunday, he... Uh, contacted us to tell us um, that he was feeling a bit down and that he was thinking of coming home and we talked about which flight he would get. Um, we Skyped for a long time and he, um, he we cheered him up really um, and we paid off his card. Um, and um, then on the Monday I Skyped him again. He said he was with all his friends and he was uh, they were watching films uh, and so he didn't want to talk. He wanted to be with his friends. Um, and then on the Tuesday, I Skyped him again and we had another long conversation. And then on the Wednesday, quite out of the blue, at lunchtime, we, we had an email with a attached suicide note. Oh, I'm, so, I'm, I'm incredibly so sorry. sorry. Um, and th well, thanks for sharing Jack's story. Can can you talk to us a little bit about the the aftermath and, and what you found out about other families in similar situations? Sure. Well, I mean, actually, within a very short time of Jack dying, we were put in contact with another family in Sheffield whose son had taken his life six months before Jack. And at almost the same time, we put in contact with a family in the southwest whose son who'd taken his life uh, a month before Jack. And so we, we, we managed to find about 30 or 40 reports, either in newspapers or via local coroners or, 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 or kind of bereavement networks. Um, and we managed to speak to about 20 families at, the, at that stage, all of whom were in you know, the same position with us that they, they had got very bright, happy, normal, cheerful boys. Um, they weren't people who had lots of other problems or, or, or issues in their lives. Gambling really was their only problem. It was gambling that had caused their deaths. So we, we had... Yeah, the other point is that they'd had very uh, bad experiences with inquests. So Joe in the Southwest, for example, the coroner wouldn't let her speak about gambling at all and um, and so she came out and spoke to the press on the steps of the court um, so uh, pretty much universally these deaths are not recorded and and tell us about what um, role gambling with lives therefore now now plays well um, I have to be honest when, whenever we do a bit of publicity we're contacted by another family so 
um, we are a point of contact for families and we provide a kind of community where we all talk to one another and we support one another. Um, we do have a counsellor who works with us very, very part-time. You know, we've got almost no money because we don't, we are now a registered tra- charity, but we don't take any money from the gambling industry. And how many, if I may ask, how many families have, have you sort of been in contact with? Well, um, we, we probably had contact with about 40, what, 40 families. Yeah. And, you know, a very big part of what we're doing is kind of the awareness raising side of things now. Because I think that one of the things that we found when we first established contact with these families and then started doing the research to find out, well, what is known about gambling? Because none of us knew um, that, that gambling was a potentially fatal ac- uh, activity. None of us knew really about the dangers of gambling. None of us knew about the um, depth and complexity of addiction. So, you know, I my, my background was in research. So so I, I kind of was, was, was reading all of the various papers and I found uh, a, a, there's a research literature stretching back literally decades, making the link between gambling and suicide. Um, and as far as we were aware, you know, that really was not a message which was in the public domain. Um, we also went further um, and, and actually identified a number of international studies which, which were actually about actual suicides. Um, and based upon those um, papers, we, we estimated that there were between 250 and 650 gambling-related suicides in the UK every year. So that's something like up to 10% of all suicides. We were absolutely shocked and appalled. And when we were talking to people involved in regulation, in treatment, you could all, you'd always say the word suicide to them and they would have a blank look on their faces as if, what are you talking about? It, it, it took a group of bereaved parents to bring suicide to the debate about gambling. You know, that all of the stuff that, that was, was, was written and talked about was about how much money you lose. And those were all the newspaper stories, even around deaths, it was how much somebody was in debt, how many hundred thousand pounds that they lost. What we brought was this realization that, that actually, it is the mental health aspects of what gambling does to you. It's not the amounts of money that you lose. Um, I mean, of course, that plays a role. Of course, that's important. It brings its own pressures. But the thing that killed our young men was what gambling had done to them, what it had done to their their their, their very basic who they were, who they thought themselves as to be and it played into the industry model that this is all about individuals it's about flawed individuals it's about inadequacies in them rather than facing the fact that there are some gambling products which are just too dangerous and there are some practices of the industry which are are absolutely reprehensible um but the, what we found and talking to a lot of people is that, first of all, there are some products that are very, very addictive. For example, the fixed stop betting terminals and the, the similar games online. Um, and then there's also coercive, manipulative practices. So sort of uh, uh, VIP uh, treatment. They do 
move people up into the VIP status where they have lost a lot of money and where they are gambling constantly. So they increase addiction and then then they have to close down accounts because people have got themselves into so much trouble. Or indeed, they will close accounts because people have died. And it's worth noting that all of the boys from Gambling With Lies families who've died all started as children. So, you know, you could see this almost as a form of abuse because actually what you're doing is you're creating the addiction, you're, you're increasing it, you're not telling people that actually this is a proper addiction or uh, that actually it's something that you might die from. Um, so, for example, Jack thought he was safe when he went into the bookies. We thought he was safe at school. A six-year-old knows that smoking kills. Um, who knows that gambling kills? And how does policy need to change do you think therefore what what would you what would you based on your experience and the experience of other families what would you like to see happen well there are a number of things first of all um as an initial thing we think we need a mandatory levy to pay for uh, research edu- research education and treatment that's truly independent up to now everything has been controlled by the industry um Very important, we think that there needs to be product safety testing before products are marketed. And at the moment, nobody's really talking about that. Um, We have to stop advertising. We need to treat this like cigarettes. Um, Stop advertising and most important, stop direct marketing because um, the industry spends five times as much on direct marketing to addicts as it does on terrestrial advertising. Oh, my God. Just on the question of, as well as the measures around the industry, what further research do you think needs to be done into the particular issue of people taking their own lives in relation to gambling? I mean, how much is the evidence base and how much does that need to be improved? Well, I I mean, it it needs to be improved hugely. I mean, actually, right from the the position of that nobody can even tell you how many people die from from gambling-related suicides. There there have been, um, one of the things that that, that has happened and and that we think we're partly behind is that there was a small study uh, commissioned on... um, uh, on, on what do we know from existing data sources, and and uh, yeah, it, it was an important study in that it identified that there was a, 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 an effect of gambling which couldn't be explained by any other factors. Um, but what we need is we need a large scale study to actually even count how many people do die. One of the reasons that we also that we don't know is that um, GPs don't diagnose gambling disorder because there's no training for GPs. Um, so while we have on, uh, when we, there is a suicide, a coroner will look at the medical notes and will uh, record if there's drug or alcohol factors. Um, there's no diagnosis pretty much of, of, of gambling disorder on people's notes. So a coroner's not going to be able to do that. Well, Charles and Liz, it's an incredibly heartbreaking story. And I'm sure the hearts of our listeners, uh, as well as me and Jeff, go out to you. Um, and it's also incredibly inspiring what you are trying to now do uh, for other families. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you for having us. 
We are delighted to be joined now by Henrietta Bowden-Jones, who is director of the National Problem Gambling Clinic, and Jim Orford, the author of The Gambling Establishment, Challenging the Power of Modern Gambling Establishment and Its Allies. Uh, hello, both. Uh, thanks for coming to talk to us. And I wondered if we could start by you maybe giving us an overview of, of, of what the situation is with problem gambling in the UK. How, how bad is it? I'd like to just set the scene by pointing out that although gambling disorder is a really um, uh, heartbreaking illness for both the people who suffer from it and their families, uh, it is a small percentage of the population who does suffer from this disease. It's just under 1%. Another 2% of the population are at risk. And these people are experiencing some harm from gambling, but not deemed to be high enough using the uh, scoring criteria and diagnostic manuals to deem it to be severe enough to be an illness. So we're talking really about, um, let's say, two and a half million people in all. Um, uh, for these people, gambling is a real problem and treatment is needed. Yes, delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We actually have a, a rather extraordinary situation in, in Britain following the 2005 Gambling Act, which really opened up gambling in Britain and effectively made Britain the most liberal gambling regime in Europe. And this, this made gambling a form of entertainment. Exactly. I mean, it was based on that fundamental assumption that gambling is an ordinary commodity like any other entertainment product and should be treated as such. So, of course, the result has been that we see uh, the high streets becoming casinos, in effect, casinos on the high street, the fixed odds betting terminal scandal, um, what's happening in football. I mean, you know, I, I follow match of the day religiously Every every weekend, and it's 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 constant gambling advertisements. You had a fact. Well, I very well, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was Joel's fact uh, who who does the research. But it was extraordinary, which is that I think for gambling logos are shown on screen for more than seventy percent of the time during match of the day. There is a there is a, a real risk here that normalising gambling through advertising leads a whole new generation of young people who we know are more impulsive, more sensation-seeking and more likely to try new activities and pushing them into this gambling behaviour. And you can see the correlation between this legislation being introduced in 2005 and what's happened over the subsequent uh, 15 years in terms of gambling. Yes, um, uh, I, I, some people blame the national lottery, of course, for starting it all it all off because that meant, you know, government effectively was itself advertising gambling, and of course the, the the gambling industry then lobbied very hard to have the same the same sorts of rights. So, so the, the advertising, I suppose, is the thing that people are most aware of. But but now I think people are really worried about the effect on children and young people and the normalisation. So. Possibly, you know, a whole generation growing up who think that the association of gambling and sport is is normal. The infiltration of social media, I mean, is now a huge grey area which contains both obvious ways of gambling, even though they may not be for money, like the loot boxes that have, that have hit the headlines in recent recent times. I don't know about those. Right, loot, loot boxes. I, you know, I'm not. You know, a great social media person myself, but um, but apparently loot boxes are ways in which you can acquire um, goods that help you progress in a game 
an online game by, in effect, betting for them. Uh, so, so it, 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 it's not you know it's not for money, but of course because those are also things that are used in the game that you can pay for. Uh, you are in effect gaining money if you if you bet, and then social media also is is a me- is a media now that's being used to advertise gambling, and and connect people to gambling. So Jim, you say we've got the m- most liberal gambling laws in Europe. Just give us some of the sort of differences, the the kind of eye catching differences between us and other countries in Europe. One of the extraordinary things about gambling is just how how varied it is around different countries. I mean, just within Europe, I don't think people realise that in Germany, for example, online gambling is still illegal. They've had enormous pressure put upon them, of course, to, right. to change that, but it still is illegal. Um, in France, you won't find a gambling machine outside a casino which, of course, to British people, used now to gambling machines all over the place and in betting shops would seem extraordinary. And I think that uh, going back to what some of your earlier comments, I think we mustn't forget that recent statistics tell us that there are at least 55,000 pathological gamblers in children. Uh, so that is an enormous amount. So one of the things that I would really like to get across today is that in the way that we are able to deliver evidence-based treatment for the people who suffer from the disease, we need to understand with very good methodology, exactly the uh, size of the problem in this country at the moment. I can tell you now that it was nine years ago when the last very good, or at least good, uh, study of prevalence in this country was undertaken. So one of the most important things, when you talk about deregulation, you talk about advertising, we need to have a benchmark in which to then progress. So every year, every couple of years, we need a very large prevalence study to understand who is impacted negatively and then work out from there what they're doing and whether there are potentially some more harmful types of gambling than others, some more addictive types of gambling or types of gambling that are more attractive uh, to young people, to children, for example. Can we talk about, you have described uh, gambling addiction as, as both a disease and an illness. Can we talk about what what are the underlying causes of that and also what you've found to be effective ways of, of treating gambling addiction at the National Problem Gambling Centre? So gambling disorder is the world over known as an illness. In the old days, it was seen more as a, as a weakness of the individual unable to resist environmental cues, such as bookmakers, for example, on their way home from work. Nowadays, we are very well aware that some people have a predisposing vulnerability I'll start with the genetics of it. We know that with all addictions, there is a significant component that is hereditary. So about half of our patients have parents or grandparents who were problem gamblers. Uh, We know that impulsivity, which is again very closely linked to neurobiological dysregulation, is much, much higher in pathological gamblers than in other Uh, than in the general population. So these are two factors that play a big part. We also see people who start gambling at a later age who may not have that genetic predisposition but are gambling to fill a void maybe after a bereavement or a divorce, a loss, uh, sometimes a loss of a job with financial concerns and they feel that by gambling they might be able to, to... 
to uh, earn more money. Now, there is one last group, the students. There is a large concern about students, university people who are trying to gamble to make money to get through their degree years. And we come across quite a few who drop out of university, but who started with the misperception that they would be able to make money from gambling. And do they have those other other factors that you've described or are the students distinct from that? Um, sometimes the students get into gambling through what is known as an early big win. And what happens here, it is a well-known and researched factor of vulnerability where they witnessed early on in their gambling careers either someone else winning a large amount or they themselves won a large amount. And large for their own budgets, of course, but deemed to be large enough to be exciting enough to create this uh, reward pathway dysregulation that we see so clearly in our gamblers. Hmm. I think Henrietta you know, obviously sees a lot of the sort of sharp end of things, don't you, don't you in, the, in, the, in the clinic, and, and sees a lot of these personal vulnerability factors, which no doubt exist. But, but of course, a public health approach would, would say, you know, there is personal vulnerability, there may be family vulnerability. But of course, if you expose people in particular ways to dangerous things... Uh, then those two things in combination are, are a pretty deadly combination. So a public health approach, of course, would start off by, by saying this isn't an ordinary commodity we're talking about, this is a dangerous commodity we're talking about. So, combined, so alcohol would be a good, a good comparison. Indeed, indeed it would, yes, yes. Interestingly enough, the prevalence, we talked earlier about the prevalence of it, people are very surprised when I, I say to people that the, the estimated prevalence of problem gambling in Britain or gambling disorder, different people use different terms, um, is very similar to the estimated prevalence for Britain of problems associated with illicit drugs. And, and how would we change what we did in terms of the law and the way we regulate gambling if we were to take a public health approach? Well, I think a public health approach would start off with a completely different assumption. That, you know, that this is this is something that's dangerous. So, for example, I don't think the fixed odds betting terminals thing would have would have happened in the way it did. If one starts off with that assumption, one would say, "Here you are inventing a new form of gambling to you know, be in the high street. Uh, show us how that is safe." Whereas the onus under the act at the moment is because we're an ordinary business and we want to innovate and do this thing, show us that it's dangerous. So the, the onus on evidence would be in a completely different place. And I think that's particularly important, I think. And I really agree with that, Jim. And actually, the other example that is so pertinent and so recent is the in-match betting. Just at yes. the time, just at the time when we all know that frequency of event is one of the most addictive components of gambling, uh, we have people who not only uh, were finding problematic the gambling on football, but now can gamble continuously without even needing to wait for the end of the match. Now, again, using what you've just described, one would have had to be sure that that was a good idea before starting to do it rather than doing it and then seeing whether it was harmful or not. And what not. about advertising? Because if you're watching live football on Sky or elsewhere... I think almost all the ads yes. are for yeah. for gambling. Yes, yes, and it's getting it's getting worse week by week. I mean, I, every time I watch Match of the Day, something new has happened. Like the last time I watched Match of the Day last weekend, it wasn't it wasn't just that the banners went round, moving round the ground, but they flashed. 
So Bet365, every, you know, every alternative show for Bet365 would flash up, up at you. And then, and then I see new companies starting out with whose names are provocative to start with. There's a new one, Burnley, this, this season, are sponsored by a, a, an online gambling company that calls themselves Love Bet. Right. So all the Bur- all the Burnley Burnley players go round with this this large sort of slogan on the front, "Love Bet," and then BBC sort of focuses in on them, you know, during matches. So would you stop time. advertising like that and advertising on commercial channels of of betting? Almost anything should be on the table. I mean, Italy, for example, I believe has just banned gambling advertising altogether. Um, and then I think that, you know, the government should be in serious discussion with the Football League and the Football Association and so on about this. I mean, government has taken a back seat on gambling. That was the other thing about the 2005 Act, that it said, you know, we want the, we want the industry to regulate itself. Um, we're going to take it, we're going to take a back seat. Uh, and that, I think, is something that should be completely stood on its head and, 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 uh, and changed around. Jim, your title of your book is The Gambling Establishment. Um, tell us about the gambling establishment and sort of what role they have and who its allies are. <laughs> one, one of the, the biggest effects, I think, of the 2005 Act was that it, it gave the gambling industry a central role um, in policy, uh, research. Uh, and so what we have at the moment is, is we have government, government trying to take a bit of a back seat, um, the industry very, very involved, uh, money for research and treatment and prevention coming from a voluntary levy on the gambling industry. It's only voluntary. And, uh, and up to now, they it's Ten million pounds a year, which for a, you know, the a drop in the ocean, drop yeah. in the ocean for the, the problem of the, of the prevalence that, that it is. We have a uh, the gambling commission, which does good work. I mean, it's 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 levied some quite big fines on some of the companies recently. So they, they they try their best, but they have to work within the law as it exists at the moment. So basically they should be, they have to license and encourage gambling companies as much as, much as they can. And then we have a supposedly independent body now called the Advisory Body for Safer Gambling, um, which should be advising government, should be completely independent, but actually is so tied in with with gamble aware which is the the industry connected body which receives the levy and gives out money for treatment and and for research and and so on. so it's a I mean, people, people I know from other countries who visit or who've been here for a while and gone off really think our system is a bit of a laughing system. So we don't have let the tobacco industry regulate itself. Why do we let the gambling industry regulate itself? Correct, correct. And I do echo what you're saying, Jim. Internationally, our system is looked at in a very puzzled way. And I feel particularly, if I use my research hat, that is very problematic because um, although... Uh, this is a big issue for, for, for various sectors of society. How many gamblers we have, what are they doing, which parts of gambling are more noxious than others. The money that is available in this country for research is really only, at the moment, money that has come from industry, which, of course, no one can really take, because if they take it, uh, then they need to declare it. If they declare it, they can't publish it in high uh, peer-reviewed journals with good indexes. So this leaves a void in terms of research, just at a time when we need it most. 
A question on the public health approach. So I think we, we sort of understand it in terms of maybe banning advertising and, and uh, educating people. I'm interested to know how, Henrietta, you would, you would scale it up um, for treatment, like the treatment you do. How, how would you scale that up for uh, treatment more widely? Well, your podcast is called Reasons to be Cheerful. So this is a cheerful bit. Yeah. Um, it only took me 10 years, but it, 10 years of very hard work. I did manage to get NHS England involved and interested and are now contributing a large amount of money to uh, set up 14 new clinics, delivering exactly the same evidence-based model that I started in 2008. As well as all of this, there are two children's clinics, one for gambling, starting from 12 years old, which will be housed inside the National Problem Gambling Clinic to start with, but there'll be others starting up. And of course, the gaming, because as Jim was saying earlier, the confluence of gambling and gaming, the potential priming of young people's uh, brains as they start with gaming at a young age and may move on to gambling as they recognise features of games that then can be played for money is vital. If we don't stop it now, we will have a massive problem, more, than, more even than the problem we have at present. Is there a reason to be cheerful here that the tide might be turning on, on this issue? Absolutely. Uh, the tide is most definitely turning. More has happened in the last year and a half than in the previous 10 years in terms of positive things to protect our population and to really help our problem gamblers. I will just mention a couple of things that are very, very important. Technology has really come and uh, to our aid. We have people in clinic who are abstinent from gambling because they're able to install so uh, software like Gamban into their devices, phones, computers. This right. stops them from accessing gambling sites. And don't forget that when I first started the clinic 10 years ago, nearly everyone was in bookmakers, whereas now they're all online. Right. So you can use technology to, to, to block the relapse prevention aspect in a very positive way. The other thing that's really changed in the last few years is the involvement of banks and the banks such as Monzo and Starling, they have allowed people to block uh, on their apps the ability to spend on gambling and they can even set the maximum withdrawal from an ATM to £10 if they want. So they're then blocked in every direction and there's a 48-hour limit before they can actually access the money if they change their mind. Fantastic work. Yes, I agree. I, I think there is real reasons to be to be cheerful at the moment because the tide really is turning on gambling. I mean, it's it's everywhere now. In fact, as we were coming in, Henriette and I agreed that we keep on meeting at places now because everybody wants to talk about gambling. Last time we met was at the House of Lords because the House of Lords has set up its own select committee um, on the gambling industry just now. Um, Public Health England are doing a special study, the Royal Society of, of, of Public Health, um, All-party parliamentary group. The all-party parliamentary group. It's all, it's all coming together. Reason to be cheerful. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. It's, it's a utopia with me uh, uh, installed as a benign dictator with Ed as my puppet prime minister. <laughs> um, uh, if, if you wouldn't we, have any proroguing problems in relation no, to Parliament, no, would no, you? No, no, it sounds like yeah. too much effort, for, yeah. really. Um, so if, if I was to appoint you both, I don't know, ministers for, for gambling? Uh, sounds what, good. What, what, what is the first thing you would ministers do? Ministers against gambling, maybe. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would um, stop the gambling adverts, full stop, 
that's Good. not a lot to ask. Yeah. I'd, I'd be delighted if I was a health minister with, there we go, with, health minister, with, 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 with responsibility for this, because that would be a tremendous start if, if, I, if, if government said I was going to be the lead person on gambling. Because, of course, ever since 2005, the lead department has been culture, media and sport, which really, not to put too fine a point upon, it is mm. not really the competent department to be leading on something that has such public That's health a really good point. implications. Health has not come into it yet. So if I was a health minister responsible, that, that would be a tremendous start. And the first thing I hope I would be able to announce is that we, my government will be working as quickly as possible for a new gambling act, which will establish this as a public health uh, problem. We recognise that gambling has a place within society, but we have to recognise that it, it has dangers and is no ordinary commodity. All right, lovely. Yes. You, yeah. you got the yeah. job. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much for coming <laughs> and talking to us. So what did you think? I mean, it's, it's really bleak. It's so strange how out of kilter we are with other European countries. Um, I'm guessing that in 2005, when the Labour government made these changes, they just didn't foresee what was going to happen specifically with online gambling. Yeah, I guess. Um, and the, the big focus was actually on casinos um, and stopping because there was a, a at one point there was going to be these uh, sort of deregulation in relation to yeah casinos, and that then didn't happen. But there was obviously a whole other set of things that happened which just were missed. I heard some awful, awful stuff. I was talking to somebody recently, and if you're you're you know do if you're online gambling during live football if you start winning too much they shut your account down if you start losing they start targeting you with free bets and adverts for for more bets you know they some some of the stuff we heard there about people who've consistently lost money being targeted and being made to feel like they are the VIPs and the high rollers it's so depressing and it seems extraordinary that you know in relation to alcohol and tobacco okay n you know, neither of them are perfect in relation to the rules we have but but we do worry about the health issues don't we in yeah, relation and, and to the this industry self-regulates. I know. I mean, I mean, it does feel to me like you know the sort of out of control, uh, an out of control situation. From what we've heard, there are solutions, but you know, we we need to act. And and if we do, you know, as we always do, want to find a reason to be cheerful, yeah. that it feels like the tide is turning, and it also feels like this isn't an issue that belongs to the left or the yeah. right. It feels like something where there's cross-party consensus and, and a head of steam building. But obviously there's all, I mean, that's true, but it's got to be, it can't just be baby steps. It's got to be big steps. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As ever, share your thoughts on this episode, or if you have ideas for future episodes or anything you've heard in the past, in fact, you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at cheerfulpodcast, and, uh, and, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. You're a bit rusty, aren't you? A little bit, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, this comes from Gillian, who says, I have become a massive fan of increasingly dark chocolate over recent oh, years. I thought we were going to have asked. <laughs> Sorry, she, she did say this our is, podcasts are keeping ca- her cheery. This is countercultural. Well, she's yeah. in Wellington, so it's winter. She says oh, the podcasts wow. keep it a cheery on the cold evenings. God, Wellington, she gets extra points for yeah. Wellington. Yeah, uh, she does say I've now converted my husband. Although I think she's Fantastic. talking about chocolate rather than the uh, podcast. Oh, right. Who declared this evening? I've turned him into a chocolate chocoholic. I told him it was a good thing, as high quality dark chocolate is definitely a health food. It is definitely true. Yeah. Yeah, he was unconvinced. More Googled than seventy percent, anyway. I think. Is that right? They reduced. Yeah. Uh, blood pressure, risk of diabetes, improved brain function, etc. So obviously I thought of you guys. What could possibly make us feel more cheerful than to hear from the experts about why chocolate is good for us? Dispel some myths and explain the science. Some of the benefits I don't quite follow. Please, can you do an episode on chocolate? P.S. My personal favourite is 82% Madagascan dark from Whitaker's. You would love it. Well, I mean, I'm really into that idea that we... Dark yes, chocolate silly. is more healthy. I think it's got to be more than like seventy five percent. Is yeah. it cocoa? But it's the it's it's the cocoa thing that's really important. We could we could just test a lot of them over the course of a podcast. In fact, over the course of a weekly, I'm, I'm not sure podcast. whether it's about being healthy. To be honest, I, I mean, I'm doing a disclaimer about me not knowing anything about this stuff. But I think it's more like it's less unhealthy than other things but if it's reducing the risk of diabetes well is that all true i don't know mm. well anyway maybe we'll take it under advisement yeah okay. set up a cross-party commission of inquiry right next one is climate change stuff hi jeff and ed i've been enjoying your podcast since listening to the one on the youth climate strike while on a long car journey it switched to autoplay on the previous episodes and i couldn't change it without risking a car accident so i was stuck with you for a few hours <laughs> Uh, That's a great way of uh, keeping people listening, isn't it? This is from Chris Priest, by the way. No other options. Thanks, thanks, Chris. Uh, But the topics I expected to be boring turned out to be surprisingly interesting in the hands of you and your guests. Anyway, on the subject of climate change, I thought the final summing up by your three guests, this is on episode 101, uh, at the end, did a great job mapping out key complementary policies that are needed, decarbonise, particularly transport and homes, innovate and engage everyone in the conversation as to how to do it. There's one thing missing for me. Countries should use their power and influence to engage other countries and multinationals to also engage. This is partly supporting less wealthy countries in their efforts to mitigate and adapt, but also using tools such as strict carbon reduction requirements in trade agreements, a zero carbon export finance policy, public sector procurement only buying from companies which have adopted science-based decarbonisation targets. There are lots more, and I'm sure a policy guy like Ed or Jeff I'm adding that, can reel them off. Perhaps we can have a show on the international position at some point, good point, and more on the role of multinationals and how they can be either encouraged or forced to act. 
We had a lot of people get in touch to about episode 100 at Abbey Road Studios. 100. Uh, this one comes from, oh God, you're going to be insufferable when we get to episode 180. Oh, I certainly you? am, yeah. <laughs> uh, this comes from Juliet Bear who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I'm just finishing listening. Uh, just... 180. Oh, I'm just practicing. <laughs> I've just finished listening to this week's episode. 180. What about episode 147? Will that trigger something snookery? In 147. Your... Break. <laughs> Um, I've just finished listening to this week's episode on fixing music education and it's given me a renewed appreciation for my own experience. I went to a very arts-focused high school where music in particular was encouraged. In our first year, we were given the chance to have free private music lessons on an instrument of our choice once a week during normal class times. Our school put on two concerts every year for which we had year-round choir practice and various bands or orchestras we could join. Despite being quite an academic person, all of these things were encouraged so much that I took art, music and drama as some of my hires. I got into Edinburgh University where I went on to get my MA in French language and literature but was always looked down on, mostly by people who went to private schools, for having studied fewer real subjects than them. Uh, because of this constant being put down, I started to feel almost ashamed of having pursued so many of the arts rather than more traditional subjects but I would not trade my musical education for anything. Um, take away the music and that would be taking away a part of me it's equally if not more important than any other subject that children are taught and should be treated as such when it comes to funding and teaching it says Juliet. Uh, this one is titled music and my grandma from ben proctor hi jeff and ed i'm listening to the music education episode and like many people it's really resonating with me in particular it's reminding me of my grandmother she died only a few years ago at the age of 101 not long before she died i asked her to think back over her century of life and tell me what she really remembered singing with other people she said that's where i was happiest she sang in the three choirs festival for 50 years she sang in little groups with local people and in huge choirs she was singing in hereford cathedral when edward elgar conducted them she and my grandfather never had any money. They never earned a penny from music, but music was their life. How we approach music education speaks to our values as a society. Is education there to give young people opportunities and choices or to churn out willing workers? Not everyone will fall so in love with music that it will define their life for 100 years, but shouldn't they have the option? Keep up the good work. Cheers, Ben. P.S. I've recently started Couch to 5K. I'm at the couch end, inspired by your podcast. Jeff, you too can do it. I'm very much a couch fan. And this comes from uh, Helen, who says, Hello from Brazil. Hello from Brazil. Hello, Brazil. I have Hello, been... Brazil. Give us your points. <laughs> I don't think Brazil are in the Eurovision. No, I think you're probably yeah. right. Uh, they should be, though. Yeah. Um, I've been, if Australia can be, why exactly, not Brazil? Quite. Maybe that's the campaign you could start. Yeah, that would be the finally the worthwhile thing to put my campaigning energies into. Um, I've been overlanding in South America for the last three months. I've traveled through Peru, Bolivia, Chile, Argentina, and Brazil. Uh, I've listened to your podcast on the long 15-hour truck days. Many of the topics you've covered have provided much debate over that night, that oh, night's dinner. That's crazy. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, my daughter's about to go to university, and the episode on volunteering has given me some ideas for volunteering on my return. Also, traveling through these countries, which are so different to ours, has given us a lot of food for thought in the issues you've covered and how they affect them. You've really given me a reason to be cheerful as well as having had an amazing adventure, says Helen. And, uh, That's so nice. She sent us a picture of, wow. the, uh, of, the, of the bus. Wow. Doesn't have 350 million on it. Um, <laughs> uh, Maybe we need to go overlanding. 
Do you think? Yeah. In a bus? Yeah, we could do like Greta Thunberg and, and uh, you know, we could take a boat there. Do you think it would be good for our relationship? I think it'd be excellent for our relationship. I think it could repair it the damage test. done. It might, I think it could it repair might be, the damage done by you not giving me your phone number it, while you're away. It might be your secret number. It might be quite a hotline. It might be quite testing for us. But, but you know, maybe, maybe we come out of it stronger. You doubt that, don't you? <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Okay, we're in the outro. You've had five weeks to to, to, to <laughs> spring a bit of tomfoolery on me. You didn't. You're not hiding it very well on your iPad. Well, somebody, somebody sent this in on uh, on Facebook. And did you ever play Top Trumps? Yes. Yeah, I can hear in your voice. Being I really Top like Trump's Top Trumps. Well, this my children still play Top Trumps. Well, this appears to be some kind of grime scene. Top Trumps. And somebody sent in on Facebook. And here is your Top Trump. Yeah. Do I so, do well on the grind? Real name. Trump. Real name, the yeah. Right Honourable Edward Miliband. Okay. Street name, Lean Ed. Oh, interesting. Reps, Doncaster North. Rolls yeah. with the Labour Party. Favourite headwear, black snapback with the Red Rose logo. Oh. It's a type of baseball cap. Right. Ed, you know, with the little thingy fastened at the back. Favourite takeaway, it says here, Dixie Chicken. It's good to know that they didn't go uh, go for the obvious one with the bacon sandwich. Yeah. Um, best bars, and the quote from uh, Grime Ed is, don't chat to me about nonsense, I will box you at party conference. Does that sound like something you would say? Not really, but keep going. It says, favourite smoke, sour diesel. Is that what you're having your vape rig? Don't know. I don't really understand. <laughs> Sucking on diesel, I don't know. It says, has beef with... Young Dave Cammers. Mm, interesting. And uh, uh, and then it's got your road credibility. What? How high is my road credibility? Three out of five stars. But I have to say that reads like a four. Yeah, so, I think that's a that's a good way of thinking. And about they've it. sent in a picture of you in in sort of some Track kind of suit. grime. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. What do you think? You thinking of changing your profile picture on Twitter to to you? Maybe. It's your head superimposed onto a grime artist's body, I think. Maybe. They seem to have lost your neck in the process. Yeah, they do slightly. Yeah. Anyway, it's uh, creative. Yeah, they found it on Reddit. So, right, there you, you go. Know, if anybody else finds... Yeah, would you any... like one as well? Do yeah, you want I do me feel to, slightly... So I mock one up for you? I'd, li- I'd like that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, do you not think you might have other things to be getting on with? Possibly. Uh, so let's thank our guests. I'd like to thank Charles and Liz Ritchie for joining us, uh, and Henrietta Bowden-Jones and Jim Orford. Emma Corsham produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Uh, Ed Seed made uh, he composed the music James Deacon made the eye dance and the artwork wasn't designed by Emily Powell yeah the, the baton has been passed on to to Henry Cole but we still love Emily Power. very much so yeah can we still keep mentioning her I know you enjoy saying her name <laughs> I do she's such a nice person she is a nice person uh, so, so he's been lost in the Rockies he's been lost in the crumpets and these have been reasons to be cheerful 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.